This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. This week, we have a special show featuring clips from a conference that CJR hosted in Atlanta on Wednesday. We gathered together journalists, media experts, and two of our top editors, Kyle Pope and Vanessa Gazzari, at the Four Seasons to talk about how the election of 2016 transformed the media, the voters, and the presidency. The event was tied to our new print magazine issue, which is Trump-themed and which we'll be telling you a lot more about next week. You can read about the whole slate of conversations from Atlanta at CJRA.org, but for this podcast, my colleague Meg Dalton and I have chosen to focus on one of those panels that we found most enlightening. Yeah, uh, I thought the second session of the day, which featured managing editor Vanessa Gazzari, um, moderating a discussion with the New York Times, Glenn Thrush, and The Guardian's Ben Jacobs, uh, to be the most, I think, captivating for me, at least. I agree. And Thrush, of course, is part of The Times' White House team. He was immortalized on Saturday Night Live by Bobby Moynihan. And then Ben Jacobs is a sort of do-everything political reporter for The Guardian, who you might remember from having a run-in with current Congressman Greg Gianforte when he was running for election in Montana back in May. Right. And, you know, they both provided some great insight into how things have and also haven't changed since Trump's inauguration. Um, And we've got some clips of the discussions where they talk about the personal impact of the breakneck news cycle, um, as well as reflections on the hostile media environment and advice for how journalists can avoid getting caught up in the reality show nature of the Trump cycle. So let's get to it. Uh, The conversation we're going to play has been edited for length, but again, you can check out the whole thing on our site. We've got the videos posted and you'll hear Vanessa asking the questions, Glenn and Ben's responses, plus towards the end, a question from the audience that sort of wrapped things up. I'm really excited to have with me Ben Jacobs from The Guardian and Glenn Thrush, who's a White House correspondent for The New York Times. So since we're calling this uh, the year that changed journalism, what actually has changed about your jobs um, since, if you want to go back to the, the beginning of Trump as a major political figure, you know, a year and a half ago, or if you just want to date it from the election or from the inauguration. And I'd, I'd love to get as much kind of granular detail about that as, as possible. When we talked beforehand, you, you all mentioned some of the things that are different day to day, but take it any way you want. Um, I, will start off, I will start off glib and, and leave the, uh, the serious stuff to Jacobs here. Um, I'll tell you how it changed. When I, uh, the second day I was covering, uh, going to a briefing at the Trump White House to see my friend Sean Spicer, uh, (laughs) I approached the gate and there were two people holding signs. And usually the people holding signs in front of the White House are uh, either telling you you're you're going to hell in the next life or protesting, uh, there was a woman out there who was, I think, protesting um, uh, to, the, the Chinese occupation of Tibet. But as I got closer, the two signs read, God bless you, Washington Post. God bless you, New York Times. And my first thought was, wow. And my second thought was, this ain't going to last. <laughs> <laughs> and after seven and a half, eight months or whatever, I still feel basically the same way. Um, a lot of wow and a lot of it can't, can't really last. I think... 
Fundamentally, what it comes down to, and I will keep this brief, is I think um, we are dealing with a presidency, sort of an impossible presidency in, in every sense of, of that word. Um, and we are dealing with an administration from top to bottom that has, to coin uh, the phrase that Kellyanne Conway used, a, a, a variant view of alternative fact. So we are dealing, we have lost consensus in media. We have a fragmented, siloed, highly partisan, entrenched media. Uh, it's funny, I was sitting on the, on the plane watching the Rex Tillerson uh, press conference earlier today, and uh, I, I, was, I was watching it on CNN, and I noticed the two gentlemen next to me were watching it on Fox News. Um, and, and I think uh, because of that, you now have in the White House uh, an individual who has, and a group of people who have a different view uh, and, and a different interpretation of what fact is. So I think the fundamental difference in doing this, and the thing that has really changed everything, if you're going to paint it with the broadest possible brush, is what is true, what is factual, and how one comes about making those determinations is being uh, challenged every single day by Donald Trump and his folks. Uh, and it's forced us, I think, to reevaluate how we present the news and also how we hold people accountable when they lie. Uh, and having covered Trump, I think my first Trump event would have been June 2015 uh, in a swimming backyard in New Hampshire. It was probably the first and last house party that Trump ever did, sort of watching, watching the evolution of this. And there is there's sort of a Rashomon effect when you're talking to folks and you're getting entirely different versions. And certainly uh, where people within the campaign, certainly, and even within the White House are giving entirely contrasting versions. Um, and trying to, the internal politics are pretty, pretty remarkable of it. But I think the other thing that's sort of understating the change is having gone through the 12 steps about how to deal with the tweets. Um, having, but whether they're newsworthy, how to deal with them, they're newsworthy, what standard to hold them to, and what, uh, what matters, having gone through the process of, you know, is this what the president says? How seriously to take this should we, uh, should take it seriously or literally to use a journalistic trope that was not terribly useful. Uh, but how to deal with the fact that you have the statements of the administration, you have what people within the administration are saying uh, privately, and then you have what the president's putting out on Twitter and trying to put that all together. It's you know, that you're getting, it's almost like Rashomon with the same narrator the entire time, that you keep on getting different views. And that's, been the interesting thing is how to deal with that because we've never had, I think, any political leader who's been so free-flowing on social media, which drives so much of things, where suddenly the tweet comes up and, and that's what drives things. That you know, Before Donald Trump, the idea of a controversial tweet from a public figure was Chuck Grasley tweeting, assumed you're dead when he got into a car accident in Iowa. And now the standard has been raised far, far, far beyond that. And it's a question of, you know, in the course of the administration, because I have the alerts on my phone, I'm sure you do too, waking up and getting the alerts at 6.30 in the morning and what he's tweeted. And sort of through the course of it, it's been interesting that these standards for me to not roll back over to go to sleep have just been sort of higher and higher and higher as we've gotten more, more used to what this is. 
So on a very prosaic level, what is your life like now covering this administration? I mean, I mean, is this tenable? Is this like a tenable situation for people to continue covering this? And how do you, I mean, you talked, Ben, when we spoke before this about, you know, you go to cover a Trump event and you have 20 different possibilities for what the main story out of that event is going to be in your head. Like, normally when you go to cover an event, you sort of have an idea what's going to lead your story and, and that this may be completely different now. You know, what is your job actually like? And how do you, how, how is it possible to continue doing this for four years? Um, and what do you see coming? Well, I mean, for me, it's a little bit easier because I'm not a full-time White House person. I come from a small enough publication where there's a bit of, you know, rotating around and having to do, you know, what would probably be, you know, six different beats at the times. Um, but there, there's a level of trying to keep up, and I'm, you know, used to covering Trump rallies. I've been to well over 100. I couldn't, I've stopped keeping track. I'd have to go through the list of things. And what I mentioned to you was the Huntsville rally uh, last week for Luther Strange, where there is not only the weird endorsement but not endorsement of Luther Strange. There was the comments about the NFL and Colin Kaepernick. There was uh, Little Rocket Man as opposed to regular Rocket Man, which of course led to an editorial debate about whether Little is spelled L-I-T-T-L-E or whether it's like Little Marco and it's two Ds. Uh, that finally got clarified on Twitter. Um, but these are you know things that you get the granular details of what you're concerned about, but sometimes where you're sort of trying to pick things out because there's so much and what to take from it. And some, sometimes I think that ended up being, you know, having to put everything in, at the top and sort of go through because there's not necessarily one, and particularly working for a publication where I have to not only focus on people in the U.S. reading for the U.S., but, you know, someone in London or Australia sort of having to go through. And, you know, that was actually one of the great challenges is trying to explain the NFL to someone who is editing this in Australia and just sort of... <laughs> They're, to that start was at fun. the beginning. That was, that was, yeah, that was at, uh, in trying not to get into too much granule ticket holders, you know, a football obsessive. What about for you? What is, your, what is your actual daily life like? Do you have a routine? Start off with a shot of, shot of bourbon. <laughs> um, you know, I work indoors. It's okay. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> they give me the health insurance. You know, <laughs> come on, let's, you know, nishkefeilach here. The, I, I, think, I, think the uh, uh, I think there has been a change. I think what really actually has happened is it's gotten a little bit easier. I think in the first, there was an ex expectation. Uh, an watching an institution like the New York Times, and I came from Politico, you know, you can make an argument that uh, Trump is kind of a Politico president um, and moves at that, with that same kind of velocity and brutality, right? So at Politico, the natural rhythms of the place really suit, suit the coverage of Trump. So, so, you know, if I had stayed there, I think covering him would not have been such a shock to my system. But the Times is really grappling with the way you incorporate. And, and I think they're far more reflective of the way that the, the larger population is having to digest this. And I think what's really happened over time is two things. First of all, I think there is now a recognition that Twitter is an official channel of communication both uh, political communication and emotional communication. Reconciling those two halves, and, and as we see it today with Rex Tillerson, he's a guy who can't reconcile those two halves. But we have to sort of have these two concepts in our mind at the same time and come, and come 
to accept it. That is, the president uses it as a means of political communication, and he uses it, uses it as a means of emotional communication, and oftentimes there is a tremendous amount of overlap between those two imperatives, right? So I think part of what uh, I and my institution have attempted to do is to figure out how to triage these things. Uh, and I think we are far less prone to, uh, to, to setting off the five alarm fire, uh, uh, you know, fire brigade every time this guy tweets anything. But <clears throat> there's a sense of emotional exhaustion. That, I think that is the prevailing feeling. It, it is, you're having to digest and you're having to, to assimilate these new realities, and, and it, it wears you down in ways that you're not aware. You're a little shorter with your kids. You're a little, um, you're not always saying thank you when someone holds a door for you. You're a little more abrupt with your sources. So Trump is, is emotionally disruptive in addition to being politically disruptive. Again, those are those two channels, the emotional and the political. And I think uh, the largest question that we have as we go forward on this, is this a permanent new feature of our political landscape? Or is this something that is going to be an aberration? And I don't think we have an answer to that yet. Wow, I have so many questions out of that. Um, I want to come back to the emotional effects and, and actually to the, the emotional and psychological picture that Trump presents, which I think you and your colleagues at the Times have probed in, in really wonderful ways um, and in enlightening ways to us. I don't know how wonderful it was for you. Um, <laughs> but certainly it is for readers. Uh, but since you talked about Twitter, and this came up a lot during the last panel, you know, what is, if you want to be prescriptive, or if you can be a little prescriptive, how should Trump's tweets be covered? Um, it, should some of them be covered in one way when they're on certain topics or they reflect a certain kind of presidential demeanor? And should others, where he's up late in the middle of the night and kind of you don't know really what's and he drifts off and doesn't finish his sentence, should that be covered differently? Um, you know, do you do you have a feeling about that? And especially for you, Glenn. I mean, you got off Twitter recently, uh, saying that it was a distraction. I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that and whether or how that's changed your ability to, you know, I, I mean, you can still listen on Twitter, right? But how how has that affected your 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 work, or has it? Um, well, I had to get off Twitter. I mean, I felt there were a couple of reasons. I think. Uh, the first reason I did it was there was a morning. Uh, I got up at 7 o'clock in the morning. And, and like most very disorganized people with ADD, I, I live by my schedule. I really need to spend a good half an hour in the morning basically scheduling my day down in half an hour increments or it gets away from me. And half the time the day is going to gallop away from you anyway. But I was sitting down doing that. And I checked Twitter and I don't even remember what the issue was. Somebody had gone after me or I'd gone after somebody. And I look up and it's 9.30 in the morning. I just completely lost two and a half hours to this thing. And so that prompted me to take it off my machine, uh, take it off my um, iPhone. Um, and then uh, I started getting attacked a lot for stuff that didn't make any sense. You know, whatever. I don't care about being attacked. It's just like the robo effect when there's thousands of people and it's just BS and it's getting you aggravated. And I realized just kind of, again, getting back to the, the point about emotional exhaustion under Trump, just how much of my bandwidth was being drawn off by paying attention to that stuff. And I just, I started off as an experiment for a few days. I took a week off. And I really felt there was more clarity. I wasn't actually missing that much. Um, we, we have like an internal tickler system at the time. So like when Trump tweets, you can see it. And like you said, if you, you follow 20 or 30 key people, 
you can kind of keep a nominal, nominal tabs on that. But I also felt like um, we're in an age of artifice, right? Or, Trump comes out of reality television. I, reality television, to me, has nothing to do with reality. It has to do with the creation of an avatar that somewhat resembles you, but isn't really you. And I found that the thing that I was sort of most absurd about Twitter is I was creating an alternative version of myself that was 80% like me, but 20% like somebody else, and enough with that. Like, I don't need that. I'm, I'm covering an institution that's about artifice. I don't need to turn myself into that. Mm. What about you, Ben? What do you think about the way tweets should be covered or about Twitter's role in the lives of journalists now? I mean, Twitter certainly, it's a bit, it's a bit circular. Um, in some ways, Twitter is certainly useful just in terms of getting stuff right away that I imagine it's sort of like you know, having an AP ticker on your phone. Um, but it can, uh, can become circular, and it's you know, worth noting how insular I think a lot of it is. I mean, the tweets are statements from the president, so you just cover them as statements from the president. It's a question, does the president follow through on every statement you know, and every act, which is something that happens with every president and every statement. But you have to, have to take them as they're directly official statements. I think this was litigated back with Sean Spicer a few months ago. And I mean, even going back, Trump has even said, I remember in Iowa, that retweets were endorsements, uh, if that's something you've been wondering about in July 2015, which was minimized because that was also the rally in which he threw Jorge Ramos out in Dubuque. Hmm. So that was, that was the press conference where that happened. Uh, and I think people were paying less attention to his Twitter in July 2015 than they do now. We'll get right back to the conversation in Atlanta, but I wanted to take a minute to talk about a great opportunity to support CJR's mission and help fund these sort of conversations and the watchdog journalism that CJR does. You can become a CJR member for just $50 for a year. That gets you a subscription to the print magazine. We'll have four issues in the coming year. You get a members-only newsletter once a week from our senior staff writer, Alex Neeson, and quarterly updates from the editor, as well as invitations to select CJR events like the one you're listening to from Atlanta. To become a CJR member, head to the website at cjr.org and click on the Join Us box in the top right corner. We appreciate your support. Now back to Vanessa Gazzari, Ben Jacobs, and Glenn Thrush. So just to come back for a second to facts and the truth, uh, which you talked about, and, and the idea that you know this is a president who has a fundamentally different understanding of that than what we normally think of. I mean, one thing I wonder about, and somebody actually asked a question um, after the last panel, um, you know, have we reached a time when facts simply don't matter? So I'm curious about your thoughts on that, and it sort of goes to your point of, is, are we just going to continue? Is, is every president or every public official after this going to uh, behave differently in relation to the facts, or can we expect that, or is this kind of a one-off? But um, I, also, I also just wonder, you know, what, what should the press be doing, and how much of a tactic is that in terms of trying to, I mean, I, I just can't tell how conscious it is in terms of trying to manipulate the press. And I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Well, um, first of all, I think every politician tries to manipulate the facts, um, manipulate the press and manipulate the facts. But in terms of Trump, I mean, in some ways, Trump has changed everything, but Trump is also so unique that the key strength to Trump throughout was that he didn't care about norms. Every basic norm, I mean, that was his strength with, uh, <laughs> 
uh, starting off running for president, that he appealed to voters without worrying about norms in terms of if you're a Republican, you you know you can't you have to be in favor of entitlement reform. Trump wants to keep you know said he'll keep all your Medicaid, all your Medicare. In terms of some of the rhetoric he used about Hispanics, about Muslims, that he really sort of went beyond and broke norms, and that's been with sort of the tactics he's used and the same stuff that it's not normal to shrug off. You know, there's the Access Hollywood tape that you can run through the list of the list of things going back to John McCain um, or Megyn Kelly, where the response normally from people would be to sort of, you know, apologize. I didn't mean that, and Trump just sort of breezed through and didn't care and just kept on bulldozing. I think other politicians care about norms inherently in a way that Trump, because he's so far removed from politics, didn't. But it's a question of where that line draw where that line is drawn and how it how it happens because so much of American politics is norms. It's not rules. There aren't things that are written in stone. It's sort of things people generally agree this is how it's done. And it's a question how the pendulum returns. And I think that depends a lot on what happens in 2020. Let's talk a little bit about threats to the press. Um, and you know, I know you've had kind of a personal experience with this, which you may want to expand on. Um, but. I just wonder if either of you feel, you know, at greater risk now doing your jobs. Do you sense that? I don't want to be alarmist about it, but do you sense that among your colleagues? Is there a feeling? Uh, and I, I, you know, I'd love to have you talk about the the aftermath to the degree that you want to of your your own encounter with. Do you want to take Greg? this first, and I'll segue in? Yeah. Again, I think like, the, you know, there are crazy people out there, and crazy people are going to do what crazy people are going to do. That's why they're crazy. Um, um, <laughs> I got caught up in the WikiLeaks stuff uh, and got uh, really nailed and was the subject. I got death threats, anti-Semitic emails, stuff mailed to my house. Um, I personally didn't tend to take that in a, in, a, in a threat way. The most threatened I've ever felt as a reporter was in my younger days when I was doing investigative pieces about, like, you know, the, the Department of Transportation in New York, and like it would be very, very personal. So I tend to think uh, that it's not that harmful. But I had a friend of mine who was a reporter for, for the Huffington Post who had someone come to his house. Mm. So, I mean, you know, I think th this is where I do think uh, the president needs to hold himself more accountable. And I, I, I think uh, when you're inciting people through your rhetoric when you're talking about how you're going to treat protesters and when you're getting very, per very, very personal with people, identifying them by name. Um, I think there, is a, there will ultimately be a price to be paid for that kind of thing. Uh, and I think uh, I am actually very thankful, and I don't want to knock wood on this stuff, that more people haven't uh, done irresponsible things. Yeah, and having gone through my own unique experience, first with the Trump campaign, where I, you know, I got to the low level of like anti-Semitism on Twitter or something like that. That it's really. Wait, you're Jewish? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. So what should I um, say here? Yeah. <laughs> which, which is which, uh, which is. Uh, Happy New Year, by the way. <laughs> Let's talk about. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the low level of stuff where, for me, it's, you know, having to like, deal with the fact, like, every once in a while someone tweets me in a gas chamber, which is not a big deal okay. compared to what a lot of folks got. And then having my own unique experience where I got 
jumped by a guy who's now a member of Congress a couple of months ago, which was the most surreal experience of, of my life and being, being put into that. And that is different uh, than a lot of this because that was legitimately one guy with issues. Um, whatever they are, they certainly are, are there. I still uh, will, for the rest of my life, remember being sitting in a police interrogation room, being by the uh, detectives in Bozeman, Montana, asking me, so was there anything about the CBO that would have set him off? <laughs> um, <laughs> which was actually, it was a lovely thing. I ended up like running through 20 minutes of explaining healthcare policy That's in the good. Congressional Budget Office to the That's police. And there was, actually. It was, no, I mean, look, I got to do, I got to, I got to inform, inform members of the American public that night. Um, but, and that is in its own way such an aberration uh, that I, you know, sometimes, sometimes people, I'm trying to measure, use my words, words carefully here, but these things happen and, you know, this is a unique character. Um, though the one thing that was heartening about that was that there was, with the exception of literally some of the worst, like, actual white nationalist trolls on earth, um, it was pretty much a very supportive thing. And what was interesting is the, I certainly got hate mail after that, um, but some of it was clearly forged. I still remember thinking about, we don't want your kind in blue sky country, thinking, you're not from Montana. That's not the state nickname, but uh, it was it was as positive experience as being assaulted by a congressman could have been, which is still fair to say it was one of the most the actually one of the most awful, terrible experiences of my life, and one you know I wouldn't wish on on anybody. But it it was something trying to work through, and it was also trying to realize that in the course of all of this, as much as I had my own personal feelings, I was representing you know. Glenn and representing every other other journalist that I, you know. With, with glasses. You know, with glasses, <laughs> without glasses, uh, that's still. I still feel guilty not contributing to the GoFundMe page. To I mean, I, that all went to CP, that all went to, I, I mean, I just really wanted, I was sort of, I saw the GoFundMe page and was sort of, I don't want any fund of this, just give this all to charity and ended up, I have a high school friend who's an eye doctor, so I just went to, what, what went to him to get my glasses. Oh, that's um, cool. So it just was like, I didn't want any part they of this. They look great, by the way. The last question from me before we go to questions from the audience. Um, this is a time when I think a lot of journalists have felt sort of morally challenged to take a position on um, certain kinds of issues like to really say, you know, the president is lying, for example, or the president is a racist, um, or the president is a misogynist, the president is sexist. And these are very controversial things for reporters to say or to write, whether it's on Twitter or in a story. And you know, I think you know, Eric again in the last um, panel made a great point, which was that we all the time, you know, we report to a point where we can come to a, a conclusion about something, and yet, you know, this has been a very tough kind of area for the press. And I just wanted to talk to ask both of you, like, personally, how do you handle that? Do you do you feel like you get to an accrual of? I mean, how, how have you handled those questions, and how do you handle it with your editors? Um, well, I. I argue the president is lying is different than making a claim that he's racist, misogynist, because there's a value judgment there. If the president is saying, I never said that, and he did say that, that's sort of black and white. And that you know, it's a question where, when you start using that words, uh, the phrase lie, which is something that 
came up uh, during the campaign because they're normally sort of, because lying something very straightforward, you know, to say and whether you want to sort of curve that uh, with different kind of stated incorrectly, stated falsely versus lying. Uh, my conversations with editors are probably different than most people in the room because I'm dealing with people who are not American, some they may be living in America, but they're, uh, they're Brits. Um, so there's a lot more that has to be translated through and a lot more conversations. Uh, you know, that it becomes a very different conversation and it's sort of what they're used to, I mean, in terms of what they're used to in politics. And it, I think, is probably uh, different than most in journalism. I, I think um, we got to use those terms less, actually, paradoxically, because so many people assume uh, that we feel that way. And I think um, the word lying, for instance, becomes devalued when you use it every five seconds. So I think the fact that you kind of, you, you know, you put it in a glass box and break only when really needed. I think the, time, the only time I, I can recall the times, and this was a, a really significant moment last year, um, when he recanted on the birther stuff, I think we called it a lie on the front page. I, I'm glad we haven't really returned to that. Um, we are a business, fundamentally, it's about uh, show, don't tell. I mean, it's the first thing I ever learned. And I think people are in the conclusion drawing business these days. You look at it, we're a very, very polarized country. There is no shortage of conclusions out there. Uh, and I think part of what we need to do is to demonstrate uh, as opposed to define. Um, and, and I think it does, uh, I think, necessitate a, uh, a reevaluation. And frankly, it's also one of the reasons I'm off Twitter again, is because uh, I don't need people making an assumption about where my opinions lie on things when my fundamental job is to present them with, with a fact. And by the way, that doesn't mean you can't draw conclusions. You can draw conclusions about patterns of people's behavior. Um, I think you leave it up to others to characterize those conclusions. That was only one snippet of some great conversations that went on down in Atlanta. Again, you can read about them on CJR.org, and we hope to continue getting out to events beyond the Acela Corridor soon. Until then, thanks for kicking it with us, and we'll see you next week.